Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, and we've got a great show for you tonight, as we always do. Uh, We're on the, uh, I, I should say, we're not on the cusp of the end of the month, because we are literally at the end of the month of, uh, month of June, and we're going to be heading into uh, the July, uh, starting tomorrow. And, of course, this is the uh, holiday weekend, the July 4th uh, Independence Day, if you will, here in the United States. So we're looking forward to a holiday. So this will be the last show, of course, of June. And then we'll be heading into to a new month. But we've got a great show for you tonight. Got a very exciting Coach's Corner uh, panel. We've got uh, some excitement there as well. Got my good friend, Mr. Clint Wright, of course, is going to be joining us as, as he does so often. And a uh, very seasoned veteran of the game, but also uh, a, a reg- fairly regular panelist here. Uh, and then we're going to be joined by a newcomer, uh, not to the golf game itself or to the profession, but newcomer to the Coach's Corner panel, uh, Mr. Brandon Stukesbury. He's going to be coming on. Uh, for his first time tonight, and then he's actually going to be joining me here in two weeks' time on the 14th of July uh, for a, a more in-depth interview on the second half of the show, and we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go along. But let me just remind everybody, uh, before I bring the guys on to the, to the uh, Coach's Corner discussion tonight, let me remind everybody, of course, we are live on Thursdays from 6 to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time, unless otherwise stated. And uh, quickest way to find us, go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live or you can just type golf talk live up in the search key and during the live broadcast from 6 to 8 p.m central that's 7 to 9 for those of you on the east coast uh, under eastern standard time uh you can find us there we're always live um, but for some reason if you're not able to join us during the live broadcast not a problem visit that link and just scroll down the page a little bit until you see the on demand section and it will always have the most current shows at the top uh, of course, all of the programs are auto-recorded. So if you can't join us live, not to worry. Uh, you can still go listen to the uh, program when it's convenient for you. Maybe if you're sitting down at the beach and you've got an iPhone there or an iPad that you're surfing around on for something to do, uh, just click on the link, blogtalkradio.com forward slash golftalklive, and you can listen to some of the great discussions that we hear. Uh, I have not only on the Coach's Corner panel, but some great interviews along the way as well. Uh, if you want to call in or speak to the guests at any time during the live broadcast, you can do so by calling area code 646 646- 716-4667. That's 646-716-4667. Or if you want to reach out to me personally, if you've got any comments or questions about the show, or if you're somebody in the golf profession, uh, whether you be a teacher, coach, or an entrepreneur, or maybe somebody you've written a great book that you think will help uh, the many millions of, of amateur golfers out there, and you want to share it with us, uh, you're more than uh, happy to, to reach out to me personally, and you can do so by uh, my email address at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. And if you uh, want to get updates on the show, uh, again, the quickest way to do that is through social media. I update on most of the social media sites, but particularly through Facebook. You just go to Golf Talk Live blog in facebook.com, uh, uh, and uh, the show's updated there weekly as who's going to be on the, the show and, and the guests and so forth and the time. And then, of course, you can follow me on Twitter as well at Ted and Buck CEO in capital letters. As I said, I've got a great show for you tonight. 
Uh, on the Coach's Corner panel, starting up, of course, is Clint Wright and Brandon Stukesbury. And then a little bit later in the show, I'm going to be joined by my very special guest, uh, Asia Adele, who's a young uh, professional golfer from the Las Vegas, Nevada area, currently playing on the Cactus Tour, but she's making her way uh, this fall onto the uh, LPJ Tour. In fact, she's going to the Q School here in a couple of months' time, and uh, I think she'll have no problems getting there. But uh, we'll talk to her in the second half of the program. But let me just tell you a little bit about the guys on the panel. As I mentioned, Clint's been on the show many, many times. He's a 30-year member of the PGA. Uh, he's also a partner at TGM Golf. And he's a big proponent of the R3 approach, which we've talked about here on the show before. And I think he's going to come back here in a month or so time and, and talk about some different things that they're adding to their program and, and uh, some new different approaches, if you will. And uh, as I've said also many times, he's one of my favorite uh, guests on the show. We always have a good time. And, and uh, we're, we're both going to welcome with, with open arms uh, a newcomer to the panel, uh, but certainly no, not a newcomer to the game. And that's Brandon Stukesbury. And he's the owner-operator of Stukesbury Golf. Uh, Brandon is also the Director of Instruction at the prestigious Idle Hour uh, Club in Macon, Georgia, and was ranked in Golf Digest Best in State Instructor Rankings for Nevada and honored as the 2011 Southern Nevada PGA Teacher of the Year. He specializes, of course, in competitive player development and enjoys teaching players of all levels, right from you beginners out there right up to the PGA Tour. So, gentlemen, uh, welcome to Golf Talk Live, and particularly welcome to the Coach's Corner panel. Absolutely. Glad to be here. Thanks, All right. Ted. Looking forward to it, man. Not a, not a problem. Thank you, Brandon. As I said, uh, a newcomer to the panel, but certainly not to the game. Uh, many years of instruction out there, and, and uh, I'm very honored to have you join us here tonight as well. Let me just make one final quick note, guys, and then we'll get on to the discussion. I want to apologize for last week. Um, I actually posted, as, as I always do every week, uh, the shows uh, through social media, Facebook, Twitter, and so on, LinkedIn and whatnot. And literally last minute, I had to cancel the show. Unfortunately, my guest... Uh, Mark uh, Gilmartin, who is the uh, president and CEO of uh, Hole-in-One uh, International, um, had a scheduling conflict, and actually one or two of the guys on the panel for last week uh, had some scheduling conflicts as well um, last minute, and uh, unfortunately I couldn't get a replacement in time. So I apologize for those of you that tune in expecting a broadcast. Right at, literally it happened right after I posted it. Uh, through social media. So I apologize for that. And then also one other thing I want to make note uh, on the Tuesday morning show this week that we had uh, my co-host Cindy Miller and I had uh, some great guests on the show and we experienced literally in the last 10 minutes of the show a power outage uh, that really knocked out everything out of whack uh, for the last 10 minutes of the show. So I apologize for, for both of those incidents and uh, appreciate you guys coming back and, and offering your support this week. But uh, as I mentioned to you guys uh, on, the, on the discussion tonight at Coach's Corner, we're going to talk about uh, this was something that actually I had a conversation with Pete Buchanan and John Hughes, uh, who've also been regulars on the panel uh, a couple of weeks ago. We talked about the three levels or categories of students, uh, beginners, uh, intermediates, and advanced students. And I sort of left out the pros. We're going to add them in a little bit tonight. Uh, I want to do things a little bit differently, guys. Clint, if you don't mind, I'm going to start with you just to, to get us going sure. here. And I'll explain uh, what I want you to, to sort of start with. And then, Brandon, I'm going to jump to you as well and, and let you give your thoughts. And then the next round of question, I'll, I'll skip and, and start with you, Brandon, if that's all right. Sure. Sound good? Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Perfect. Uh, Clint, what I want to do is I said that there's three levels of golfers that I, uh, or as I said, four levels, but three we're going to focus on primarily tonight. And let me just give it sort of a quick synopsis of, of each of them, and then I'm going to ask my, my question to you. Uh, the beginning students, those are the students that are obviously not advanced uh, or, or a beginner student, and their tendencies tend to be very wild and inconsistent. Uh, players who more often not shoot double bogey golf or worse sort of fall in that category. In the intermediate category, 
uh, and this is certainly not science, but just to give you a general overview, um, these tend to be the golfers with some yet limited control over the uh, golf ball, but yet lack consistency. Uh, so they're a little bit better than the, obviously the beginner player, but they still lack some inconsistency, some issues. We're going to talk about that tonight as well. And they tend to range from sort of bogey to double bogey golf, following that. Uh, and certainly there are some variances, but that's generally the rule of thumb. In the advanced group, of course, they tend to be the players that play better than goal, uh, bogey golf. They're more, a little more consistent in their play, but uh, have a bad shot as we all do from time to time. So that's essentially, and of course the pros, we know what they do. Um, they don't make as many mistakes as the rest of us do, but uh, uh, they do make some from time to time. Um, we talked about, Clint, some of the things about how for each of them, uh, when John and Pete were on the panel, about how uh, and how much time we should be spending on the on the practice tee with them and how much time we should be spending on the golf course. And both of them sort of resoundingly came back with the answer, you know, it really depends on uh, sort of the assessment leading up to, to the lesson or, or the coaching plan. So I want you to sort of recap, if you will, and co- cover that a little bit. Um, when we're dealing with these different golfers, obviously we want to assess what level they're at, but tell us a little bit about the assessment process, if you will, to help uh, some of the teachers out there ascertain what level the players are at. Well, you know, there, there's a lot of different things you can look at. I mean, one of the things that I, you know, we, we call them a little bit different. We, we don't break it down quite as advanced beginners or whatever. We look at social recreation golfer, social sure. recreation competitive players, you know, you're going to play in your club championship or you're just going to go out to bang it around. And one of the things that we are, from an assessment standpoint, we try to ask a person, what do you want to, what are you trying to do with your game? Why are you playing? And then we go about how long have you been playing? Have you just started? Um, you know, do you have any, did you start 20 years ago and give it up when the kids were born and now you're getting back to it? What, um, you know, just where are you? I usually take a person to basically to evaluate their short game, their chipping, and their full swing. We look at them, take some videos, decide with the student, okay, here's where we see you're at. Here's where you need to spend most of your time to to get quick improvement. Um, you know, the old trick I used to use is teach them how to chip and putt first because if I could lower their score, I was a genius. Right. You, know, you get them to buy in that, well, this is right. working, so maybe the full swing stuff will work. So we kind of combine the, the assessment with a improvement plan, mm-hmm. um, an approach to, okay, where to, you know, if you look at, at, at um, how a person's scoring and what their purpose of playing is, so there's more to it than just ball striking and, and what your swing look like. I, I try to understand what the, like I said, what the purpose of the players wanting to play golf is, and it, and how much time are you going to spend? You know, how much time do you have to practice and improve your game? What's your intent of commitment? And then I can help a person decide where they're going to get the best results for the limited amount of time they may want to spend on trying to play the game. But but yeah, most well, of that evaluation well, just comes down to eyeball. I mean, you just gotta gotta see them try to do it to give them a chance, you know, chance to show show you what they got or don't have. Right, exactly. Um, well said, um, Brandon. I want to phrase it just a little bit differently for you, if you don't mind. Um, again, sort of a similar question, but what I want to ask you is, 
with the, the and I'm using these levels, and again, they're not carved in stone. There, there may be different phrases or, or uh, approaches right. that you may or, or categories that you may use. But uh, I've just broken it down to sort of simplify it so people understand what a beginning golfer and maybe a little better intermediate and an advanced golfer is. Um, but obviously, there's different ways that we're going to approach each of the different levels. We've done the assessment now. Um, we're looking at, at uh, categorizing them in our minds, and we're certainly not doing a big memoir about it, but we're, we're trying to f- see how they fit into what area. Um, obviously, with beginning golfers, one of the early things that we want to do is make sure and check that they have good sound fundamentals. So what are some of the critical components? And just Again, you don't have to get into all the meat and potatoes, but just give us sort of a general overview, in your opinion, for the three levels are, are what the primary things that you're looking at and looking for for the beginner, the intermediate, and the advanced golfers. Um, after you've done your assessment, what are you looking for to make sure that that's what you want to bring to them, make sure that they're um, fundamentally sound in certain areas, and how much is too much and how much is too little for each of the categories? I know that's a big question, but I know you wow. can handle it. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. So so let me, let me see if I can attack this thing. I, here's what I would tell you. I think in a perfect world, you know, you do a, a significant – um, very in-depth assessment of every player that comes to you, regardless of their level. I think in a perfect world, you ask better players, and by better players, I would say anybody 15 handicap and less, I would qualify as that kind of mid-category. Um, you know, I in a perfect world, you ask them to go off and play rounds of golf and collect some stats and bring it back to you. I think in a perfect world, you sit down with a professional player or a high-level amateur, and they're already keeping their stats, and you can kind of yeah. attack their weaknesses. And, and and that's all in a perfect world. Now, rarely does that ever happen. Um, you know, if you're teaching a professional player, specifically somebody that's on the PGA Tour, then you can get all the statistical information um, and do your own research. But no, very few amateur golfers, if any, are ever keeping their stats to a level that, that you can really use them as a coach when they walk up to you. That's all in a perfect world. I, I think in a world that's not perfect and you don't have those things, I think you have to attack weaknesses first. And so if you if you kind right. of walk with me, imagine imagine the individual skill or skills that are required to play good golf. And hypothetically, let's say uh, – Putting is a skill, and chipping is a skill, and uh, short pitching is a skill, and long pitching is a skill, and iron play is a skill, and driving is a skill, so forth and so on, right? If you could imagine those across a chart in kind of a bar graph style look, right? And so each skill is a Mm -hmm. bar on a graph. I think you have to go after weaknesses first. Um, and that's regardless of the type of player that they are because the weakness is always going to be the one that kicks them in the tail when they need it to hold up, right? It's always going to be the one that breaks down first. I would tell you that when a when an average player or, a, you know, a club member that, you know, that plays once a week and a couple of companies scrambles throughout the year comes to me and needs mm-hmm. some help and, and says, I'm ready to get better, here's kind of the spiel that I give them. First and foremost – I need you to be able to strike the golf ball solidly. I need right. the ball to be airborne and moving in a general direction downrange. I don't really care if it's curving right or curving left, or for that matter, if it's curving right one time and then left the second time. I just need it to be in the air and moving in the direction of the target, right? 
mm-hmm. once we can do that, then I need that dispersion narrowed enough to keep it in play. Right? Yep. And so well said. That's step two. Right? And, and so if they come to my tee and they every time they strike it with a seven iron or a driver or whatever, if it's not in the air moving down range, that's where I'm starting. I don't care where any of the rest of their game is, right? And obviously this is a beginner player, right, or a, a, sure. not a very highly skilled player. Um, and once I can get them – once I can get them striking it solidly and controlling the direction enough to keep it on the reservation, so to speak – that may not be mm-hmm. a very political correct way to say that anymore. But anyway, um, <laughs> then I'm going to talk – if I can get them near the hole, let's just say 30 yards from a green in regulation – now it becomes a short game problem, right? Because mm-hmm. now they're covering the 400-yard par four in two shots somewhere around the green without any penalty strokes. Now I've got to move on to another part of their game, which is short game, right? And then eventually I've got to move on to putting. And I would say that's how I handle it with any beginner player. Obviously, a more advanced player is going to come to me and they're going to have those things. And so, you know, you get into talking about start line control and eliminating one side of the golf course for a better player. You talk about um, up and down percentages for a better player. You know, you start to talk about birdie conversion rates for better players. I'm a stat guy, right? So I like to explain to people, you know, what it takes to kind of track your game and know if you're getting better. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question at all. No, nope. but uh, but, but that's how I would handle it with a you know with a, a less skilled player. And then as we get better and better, then we move up that chart, right? And so uh, you know a tan handicap can can move it in the direction of the target every time. And as long as they're not having any penalty strokes, then I'm probably going to start with them somewhere around short game. Um, right. You know, and, and that works till you get to about a, you know, a single digit handicap. And once you get to a single digit ha- handicap, then you've got to start to talk about things like not just hitting a green with your third shot. Right. If you, you know, you, you got to talk about how close you hit it with your chip shot. And you, you can't just talk about two putting or giving yourself a chance to make a par. You've got to start to talk about getting it close enough to actually make a par. Things of that nature. Um, and so I, I think it just climbs that ladder as the player that's in front of you gets better and better. Well said, Brandon. And, uh, no, you hit it right on the nose. It's exactly what I was looking for. Um, you know, Clint, one of the things that, that you know, comes to mind as well, and, and, you know, Brandon did sort of lay it out a little bit, you know, there, it's not just the skill levels that are different, but it's also the approach and what you're going to look for as, as a, a golf professional when you're working with these different students. You know, obviously you're not – some of the things that, as Brandon just pointed out, that he's going to talk to a more advanced player about, he's not certainly going to overload. Uh, and that's one of the, the issues that I want to get at too is, is how much is too much information for the beginner golfer. Um, you know, we've, we've talked about things before, um, things like ball flight laws and things like that are certainly uh, good information to know, but – is there a danger of information overload, uh, overload? Excuse me, for the beginning golfer, uh, and and again, it, based on the assessments that we do, and as as Brandon talked about, and as you talked about, um, does that dictate how much information we're going to parlay, if you will, uh, at the different levels? And that's for Clint. Well, yeah, I think there's 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 information overload everywhere. 
<clears throat> I mean, you watch the Golf Channel. <laughs> this information overload. I mean, um, and I get emails every day like you do from the guys that's got the newest secret sure. to hitting it longer and straighter and, and uh, how to lower your score in 10 minutes. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, I, I get yeah. a chuckle every morning, open my emails, and I find another method for lowering my score overnight. Um, and it, it's amazing that, that uh, apparently that we have a, a golfing public that, that thinks that some of that's valid. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so, yeah, I think there's a tremendous amount of overload. And, and uh, Brandon made a real key statement a minute ago. He said it's the third shot. <laughs> so, <Yep>. You know, <laughs> It, it sounds like a shame. That sounds like a shameless plug. <laughs> that's a shameless plug, and I'm not, you know, I'm not too proud to put it in there. But uh, we come to that, and 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 obviously right. that uh, being able to put the ball in the air and hit it down range is important. But I guess from a, my philosophy has always been, I can, I, I I've done it many times. I, I've I've hit it, you know, 500 yards with a par on a par five and end up making a six. I mean, yep. uh, so hitting it down range 500 yards didn't make much difference. Uh, if I can't learn to take advantage of where I advance the ball to, then my score's not going to get any better. That's one of the reasons that we have people in the last 30 years, handicaps haven't come down. Yeah. You know, we've got better clubs, better equipment. and you know, So, yeah, I think we're getting a tremendous amount of overload of information that to me is directing our golfing public in somewhat the wrong direction on how to improve their game. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm soapboxing here a little bit, but, you know, I, I think that I, I ask the question now, you want to play like Jason Day? Everybody, oh, yeah, I'd love to play like Jason Day. Now, remember, I didn't ask you, do you want to hit it like Jason Day? Right. I said, do you really want to play like him? You know, and they said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, he won the player championship by four shots and hit three greens on the front nine. Mm-hmm. And they look at you, you got to be kidding. I said, well, no, he he knows how to play. And I, I think that's right. where we need to get back into, into our teaching is not necessarily trying to teach somebody to, to hit a ball perfectly. And I think Brandon w- was getting to this, you know, to, to to hit the ball perfectly, move it downrange, get it in the air, and then know what to do with it once you've got it within that third shot range. Right, right, exactly. You know, the best players in the world play that way. You, you look at the yeah, stats. I mean, they, they everyone play that way. Hit 10, 11 greens, 12, 13 greens in regulation, and they shoot 69. They just don't give any of them back because their third shot is <laughs> where they play. It's where they make their right, money. Right, exactly. Yeah, and, and you know, the, it brings up another interesting point. Brandon, I'm going to flip over to you now on this. And, and something that I, I sort of asked about is, is how do we sort of differentiate when it's time to, you know, have them on the, the practice tee or the, the driving range and when we need to get them on, on the golf course. And, and, you know, based on what you were talking about earlier, Brandon, you know, obviously we need to, to ensure that they're going to be able to hit it in the air. There's no point in taking them out to the golf course if they can't hit the golf ball with any sort of uh, consistency. And that doesn't mean they have to be hitting it, as you said, in, in a, a tight dispersion. I mean, that's ultimately what we want to get them to. But, um, you know, if they're duffing and topping all of their shots, you know, as, especially as a beginning golfer, the last thing we want to do is get them out on the golf course and just frustrate them anymore. So how do we find that balance act uh, with, with having them on the practice tee or the driving range? Um, and, and let's start with the beginning golfer. 
you know, how do we decide when it's time to move them to the golf course and, and teach them how to play? Um, you know, is there, is there a point where it's too soon or is there a point where, okay, they're hitting the ball decent now, now we need to get them on the golf course. How do you find that balancing act? The moment six to seven out of ten shots are solid and airborne, I want them on the golf course. Um, I, I, I'm I'm kind of a I'm kind of a golf course, and let me put it let me put it a different way, right? I, I at some point in my career, I got pretty comfortable with my knowledge of the golf swing and swing mechanics, and so I started to branch out in some areas of the golf you know the golf game that I studied and tried to get better at it teaching. And over the last four or five years, I've done a lot of study in the world of motor skill development and human learning. And some of the things that I found were nothing short of astonishing. Um, and it's completely changed the way I, the way I teach golf and the way I approach getting, you know, getting other people to understand it. And so I want them on the golf course as soon as I can get them. I want them in the playing environment as soon as possible for two reasons. Um, the, the first is that you, they will actually learn better, and by better I mean learn faster when they're in that environment as opposed to the environment of the driving range, in my opinion. Actually, it's not my opinion at all. There's plenty of research that backs that up and lots of, across lots of sports, um, not just mm-hmm. golf in, in particular. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is to to Clint's point, I want them to understand that, you know what, if you don't hit it perfectly and it may not get airborne, maybe you hit it, you know, two grooves thin and you hit a little screamer, but it ends up going right down the middle of the fairway, you can still play that golf shot. You can still hit the next golf shot. That golf is not an, it's not an, you know, it's not an art contest. It's not a contest of who can hit the, the best golf shots or the prettiest golf shots. It's a math problem. And there are lots of ways to get the lowest score possible. And you don't learn that on the range. And so right. I try to get them to the golf course as soon as I can get them on the golf course. I refuse to do short game work anywhere but on the golf course. Just won't do it. Um, I've got plenty of facilities that I'd allow her to teach it. I've got a, a six-hole par three golf course that's just awesome. I won't teach short game out there. I go to the golf course to teach short game because I want them in a real environment. I want them right. to feel the pressure of standing on number 10 tee trying to hit that golf ball or hit that golf shot that we've talked about when there's water left and trees <clears> right. I want them to feel that because it then transfers to the golf course better. By better, I mean faster. And so right. I would say really early in my teaching, yeah, you're right. If they can't get it airborne, I mean, if they're a raw beginner and they, you know, they miss it three times before they actually touch it in the fourth swing, I'm probably not going to take that, you know, that person to the golf course. But the moment, again, six or seven out of ten are, are reasonably solid and moving in a general direction of the hole, I'm taking them to the golf course. Yeah, and, and I, yeah, I would agree with that as well. I think that there, there is a point. The reason why I wanted to ask that question again, and we talked about it when John and Pete were on the show uh, a few weeks ago, but uh, the reason why I wanted to ask that is because, you know, we, we've all three of us and, and the others that have been on the panels before have all seen this as, as teacher professionals. Uh, time and time again, we see, 
you know, the amateur golfers out there spending an hour or two on the driving range, just, you know, raking and beating balls without any sort of purpose. And then they get out on the golf course and, you know, they, they can't understand why their range game isn't coming out into the golf course. And they're hitting beautiful shots on the driving range or the practice tee, but they get out in the golf course and hole number one, and their knees are knocking and the nerves are setting in. And maybe they've got a couple of groups behind uh, waiting to, to for their opportunities and the nerves set in and they're just, you know, all over the place and they can't figure out why. And it's because they're not putting those principles that, that we're teaching them to practice. And this comes to another uh, uh, point that I want to uh, Clint, I want you to talk about a little, mm-hmm. a little bit. We've touched on many times in the past, but what do you think is it going to take besides beating them over the head to get golfers to understand as much as we want them to, uh, to come to us and, and, and we want to be able to help them with their game, if they're not going to then take that information that we provide and the skills that we've uh, helped them to learn out there and put it into practice, and all they're going to do is just keep coming back. And t- I mean, we want the business. We want certainly to, to make some money. But at the same time, it's also equally frustrating when they're not putting these principles to practice. They're not getting out there and working. And, and to prove your point, you know, to play like Jason Day, yeah, you don't have to hit the shot exactly like Jason Day. But you can bet that he uh, practices with a purpose and he's out there playing the shots that he's working on. A lot of amateurs don't do that. How do we break through that shell? What is it going to take, do you think, to get the amateur golfer to realize if you want to become a better player, it's not just about taking lessons. It's about putting those principles to practice. What do we got to do well, to, to get that? Yeah, I, I think Brandon Brandon is right on the money. Let me just add, and I'll, I'll get to your question, but the one thing you mentioned about the practice tee to the first tee, and one of the reasons that, that Brandon's correct in the learning process is get them on the golf course, is the criteria for success changes immediately from the practice tee to the first tee. If you ask right. a person on the practice tee how many times they actually watch the ball stop on the driving range, they would tell you never. <laughs> the, a, a successful shot on the practice uh, a successful pr- shot on the practice tee is a ball that's in the air and going where they think it's supposed to go. Yeah. They've got another ball drug over before that one hits the ground. <laughs> when you go to That's the true. first tee box, the criteria the criteria for success is where it stops, not how it flies. Right. And that's the the then coming to your question is that when you you know, you've seen it that, that you see guys out there with their seven iron feet making full swing seven irons, they get on the first tee, they hit it down the fairway. Let's say their seven irons a hundred and fifty five yard club. And and they 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 stand there and they pull out their six iron and try to hit a three quarter six. Yeah. They haven't practiced a three quarter shot in a month, but they're going to try to play exactly. one on the first hole. So the question comes down: Is that I think that's our responsibility to tell the person, okay, how, and this is an evaluation of the player: Are they an aggressive swinger, or do they do they you know hit more three quarter shots when they're out trying to play what what are they doing and maybe this is a little bit more towards the advanced player but the beginning Mm -hmm. player is going to have a personality as well and i think we have to convince them look when i'm standing on the practice tee with with a person i'm working with and over the years working with is that i'm trying to teach them shots that they can actually use on the golf course and convince them, hey, look, when you get at 145, you don't need to be trying to, to, to kill a 9-iron. You need to be hitting this little cruiser 8-iron you've been practicing. 
Mm-hmm. Pra- you know, we, we can say it any way you want to. Practice the way you play or play the way you practice, however you want to see it. But that's our job as instructors and teachers to guide our students to understand that we're out here trying not to necessarily develop your ball striking. I'm trying to help you learn how to play the game. All right? It, we, want, we want to improve mm-hmm. their game or their ability to play the game successfully enough that they'll play it for a lifetime. Okay, and I like Brandon said a minute. There's a there there's 125 guys teed up on the tour every or 150, however many they got now, and they every one have a different style of play. Mm-hmm. But they all strike the ball good, but they all have a different style of play, and and that's where they're playing the game. And and we can get into a lot of little details and sure. stuff, but you know, you know that that the to me, it's all about trying to practice and teach them and guide them into buying in that I just want to get the ball either on the green, around the green, you know, and then be able to chip and putt. You know, Ted, we, you know, that that's me in the short game. I'm going to teach a person how to chip and putt. Right. And, you know, and Brandon's right. I mean, with a, with a real raw beginner, I'm going to start them out around the, the chipping green just to try to develop a little bit of technique. But as soon as their technique is 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 fine, then you got to get that person in playing situations as quickly as you can. Um, because then, not only are they developing their technique of making the club strike the ball, they're developing their decision-making skills as well. What kind of shot do I need to hit here? Is it a bump and run? Is it a flop shot? Is it a 54 with a little knockdown, you know, little pinch shot? My decision-making there. It, once my technique is good, is obviously the difference between an up and in and a chip on the green and a two-putt for a bogey. So decision-making skills are just important at that level um, as it is ball striking. You know, well said, uh, uh, Clint. Thank you. You know, it, it raises an interesting thought to me. Um, you know, we've heard, and you mentioned earlier about the Golf Channel, and again, uh, this is not to, to sh- shadow a, a criticism to anyone, but, no, you know, no, uh, we've, watched, we've watched – we've watched golf on TV over the years and we've watched different lesson T and so forth. And I think the average player has misunderstood some of the information. I mean, when you're, when you're putting together a short segment, you can't get all the details in, you know, as we try to get as much in as we can, but even we can't get every intimate detail. And that's why it's important to get out and, and uh, work with your local uh, professional um, where they can take a little bit more time and get into some of the nuts and bolts. But, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of amateurs misunderstood uh, in, in, in the practice sessions, and that's when they're out on the, on the tee, uh, on the practice tee, uh, as an example, um, you know, it's important to work through your bag. It's important to work uh, on the shorter irons as well as uh, the driver and so forth. Um, but you're right, Clint, they don't practice these sort of in-between shots, these sort of finesse shots that sometimes they may be called to use out on the golf course. So they, you know, they'll start off and maybe they'll pull out, hit a few, you know, soft wedges out there. And when they feel they're hitting the wedge pretty good, they, they might go to their nine or eight hour iron and, you know, and progress up through the bag. And eventually they'll, you know, um, pull out their driver. Uh, and they think, okay, well, I've warmed up now and I'm ready to go out in the golf course. And like you said, they, they hit their first drive and it's a pretty nice shot down there in the middle of the fairway. And they've got maybe 155 yards. But as you said, instead of pulling out their 7-iron, which is their 155-yard club, they're pulling out their 6, and they're trying to finesse a 3-quarter 6-iron, which they never practice. Right. Um, and and this becomes a – right. And, and, and Brandon, this brings me to, to uh, sort of lead into the question I want to ask you. 
Um, you know, we, we've talked, we've all touched a little bit about on the beginning golfer. Um, we don't want to get too involved in the course management or uh, certainly we want to, to teach them how to play golf, but we don't want to get into too much strategy too early on, as I said about information overlord with the beginning golfer. So as we move into the intermediate, intermediate and advanced players, uh, now sort of the time we want to get into more strategy and a little bit more um, really playing the game and understanding and analyzing um, what they need to do on the golf course. So walk us through that process that you're doing with your students um, when you start to work on the, on the management side of their game. Well, I, I think the first the, the the first thing I would say, and this is certainly a, a certainly a you know a warning to any other golf instructors that are listening to your show, and something that I would also want the amateur golfers to hear, and hopefully they can go do something <clears throat> about. Never make the mistake of assuming that the player knows how to play a golf course just because mm-hmm. their handicap might be lower. Um. I think it's sorely, I think our business is sorely short on time spent teaching people how to navigate a golf course. And what I mean by that is, you know, little things, you know, about should I hit three wood here? Do I need to hit driver here? Does it make sense? Well, it's a, you know, it's a a 320 yard hole. Of course, I need to hit driver because I can get up there near the green. Well, there's some 320 yard holes that that makes sense. And some, it absolutely does not. Uh, You know, the the green is big here. And so the pins in the front and I pull out my, I whip out my range finder, which by the way is ruining course management, but you know, I whip out my range finder and I, I hit the flag and it's 135 yards. So I'm going to pull my 135 yard club and there's, 17 yards of green, you know, behind that flag. And there's a bunker about three feet in front of it. Um, And they just never think about the fact that, you know, maybe you need to hit it five yards farther than this flag, fly it dead over the flag. And you've still, you know, got a 15 to 20 foot putt that may be within the tour, you know, inside the PGA tour average from that distance, (laughs) you know? And Mm so people don't, they don't understand that. They either haven't been taught it, you know, haven't been taught those things, and have found a way to be. I assume we're still talking. We're talking about the more advanced player now, right? Am I on the sure. same page yep. as you are? Yeah. So they've mm-hmm. either yep. they've either never been taught that, or they've and they found a way to be good despite that, which begs the question: How good could they be if they actually had that information? Um, for example, I I teach uh, a lot of different a lot of different college players in my part of Georgia. We have a lot of small colleges that are, you know, really close to me. And so I teach a lot of kids at that level. And Division One collegiate athlete, mm. right, going to school for free because of his mm. golfing ability. And when I showed him a yardage book that I had made on our golf course and told him that I wanted him to start doing this, he looked at me like I had three heads. Yeah, I didn't have a clue, did he? <laughs> he had never seen it before. <laughs> And I asked him, I I said, you know, just for sake of conversation, Jimmy, I said, Jimmy, if you don't know how to do this stuff, how do you play golf? I mean, what, what, what is your, what is your plan? Right. And he said, well, I just, I'll pull, I'll pull the club that makes sense, you know, to try to hit it in the fairway and I just hit it down the fairway. I said, oh, okay. What's next? Well, I just, I pull the club to the flag and I just try to hit it close. (laughs) <laughs> and he was dead serious. Oh yeah, right. 
I'm telling you, Division One collegiate athlete. I mean, oh, this yeah. kid's getting his college paid for, mm-hmm. right? And he's literally just going to shoot the flag with his rangefinder and then hit it to that yard. And so yeah. I was, I was taken back. I was floored, right? <laughs> and so we we went through this whole conversation. You know, I, I get up to the green and I'm showing him kind of how to mark a green out, you know, and how to cross out, you know, how to look at a green and figure out where they're kind of, you know, they might put a pin and then crosshair that spot, you know, and hit different putts to it. And he's like, well, but what if the pin's up there? I'm like, what What are you talking about? Like, you don't know where the pin's going to be, <laughs> you know? And so I went through this whole conversation about how golf courses have a way that they're supposed to be played, right? And you're not playing, you're not, you know, you're, you're trying to play, especially in a competitive stroke play, you're trying sure. to play the golf course the way the golf course was supposed to be played and execute those shots better, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. right? And, and, right. And so that, that, that's who wins, right? The guys that play the golf course the way it was meant to be played and just hit it a little closer than the next guy or make an extra putt or <clears> two <throat> than the next guy, yeah. right? And it was a, it was a total yeah. different concept to him. He's like, what are you talking about? You know, Jimmy shoots 68. I got to shoot 67. No, you don't. What are you talking about? I mean, it, it just, yeah. it, 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 I was astonished. And so I, I, th- I think we are sorely short in our business at teaching people how to do those things. Maybe it's a sign of changing times with the advent of rangefinders, you know, and, and, and goodness knows I use my rangefinder a lot, but, but you see my point. Maybe it's maybe right. it's a new generation and they just don't do it the way we did it. I mean, I remember being taught that by my professional, and I was never really a good competitive player, but I got taught that nonetheless. And so I think we have to do a better job as instructors as a whole getting them on mm-hmm. the golf course and talking about strategy, talking about, to Clint's point, about, you know, how to hit this shot here. How, you know, do I hit this high and do I need to stop it short? Do I hit this low and need to let it run out? You know, what's the slope going to do to it? What's the, you know, what's the grain of the grass going to do to it? What's the lie going to do to it? You know, all those things that are very, very different from the flat, perfect lie on the driving range, right? How does all that play into how we're going to play? And I just don't think we do enough of it. And, and, and I try to spend as much time as I can out there with my better players. I mean, look, I'm going to tell you this real quick story, and then I'll, I'll shut up and let Clint talk for a little bit. <laughs> I go up with one of my. I'm loving it. I mean, you're you're just preaching to the choir now. I, I go up. Yeah, you know, I go you're up doing... to a Web.com tour event. Okay, with a, a new player of mine. I never I'd never been to a, a professional event with him. He had kind of signed on new, and I'm going to leave his name unnamed for obvious reasons. Um, sure. And, and I went up, and we're playing in a practice round, and 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 he tees it up, and he's got you know a couple of his buddies that he plays with and travels with a little bit, and they're going to play some little two dollar Nassau or whatever. And I'm all ready, right? I got my yardage book out. I got my pencil and my pen out. I've got my range finder, and I'm ready to, you know, to write some stuff down. And uh, and he plays the first hole. It's, he played the golf course before, but he hits it down there, and, and he goes down there. And we're in carts, by the way, which is pretty rare for those events, but they right. have to take carts that day. And so we get down there, and we find out that, you know, he's hit it too far for what he wanted. And so he just kind of looks around, and he's like, huh, I guess I should hit three iron here. And then he just proceeds to hit the next one on the green. And of course, I'm thinking, well, shouldn't we go back and hit three iron? And, you know, well, okay, all right. So we go up to the green. He hits it about 12 feet with a sand wedge, taps his putt in for birdie, and then goes to the next tee. 
And I'm thinking, really? Like, aren't we gonna, aren't we gonna hit some putts or check some slopes? I mean, what you know? Oh, okay. I guess we're going on to the next tee. We go to the next tee, which is par three. He hits it in the middle of the green. Right? Doesn't doesn't step a yardage off. Doesn't look at a tee marker. Just hits the club, hits it right in the middle of the green to about 25 feet. Two putts it for par, and we go to the next hole. I'm thinking, right. okay. I, I hadn't written anything down yet, right? And this is the practice round. We go to the next <laughs> hole. All right, now bear with me here. This is the end of the story, okay? So he, this guy hits a beautiful fade, right? I mean, about a three-yard fade. I mean, it's just perfect, right? Every single time he swings it, it's perfect. Um, we go to the next hole, and he's kind of lining up a little weird. You got, you know, death down the right-hand side and, you know, pretty pretty open on the left. And he's kind of aiming down the right side a little more than I would think he would want to. I don't say anything to him. And he hits it, and it may still be bouncing in the trees right now to the right of this hole. <laughs> uh, he hit it so far in there. And we, we're riding down the fairway, and I said, you know, Billy or, you know, or whatever his name was, I said, what were you thinking there? He said, well, I was trying to – you see that tree down there, you know, in the middle of the fairway? I said, yeah. He said, I was trying to play about a one-yard draw onto that tree. I said, excuse me? And he just repeated himself. <laughs> he thought, excuse me, meant I didn't hear you. And I said, no, no, I, right. I heard you. I said, two things. I said, first of all, you don't hit draws. Like, what are you talking about a draw? I'm like, the ball never curves left for you. You hit the best, the most beautiful fade I've ever seen. Second of all, this is the fade hole. Why, why, would right. you, why would you want to play it? Why would you want to play a draw? And this is what he says. And, guys, this is a web.com player, okay? Right. This guy has the potential to make a very, very good living playing golf. He says to me, well, that's my draw club. I said, what? <laughs> He said, well, well, that, that three would set up to hit a draw. I said, Billy, you realize it's an inanimate object, right? It doesn't do what you don't tell it to do. And he says, well, I'm telling you, it won't fade. I said, well, then it's broken because you just hit it 80 yards to the right. right. 80 yards to the right. And, and the, the point I'm making is here is a guy that's supposed to be at the elite level. He had no clue how to play a golf hole. No right. clue. Mm-hmm. Right? Which begs the question, my God, how good could he be? Right? I mean, how good could the guy be if he just had a little bit of knowledge on how to play golf? And so, sorry for my long story, but, but I, that no. just happened to me a, a few months ago, and, and I was just I was floored. And so, again, I'll reiterate it, and I'll shut up. I don't think we teach it enough, and I don't think we need to make the assumption as teachers in thinking that just because they play to a scratch handicap that they know how to do that. Because in my experience, the vast majority of them do not. Right. Now. And I'll and, period and, and, and then I'll end it. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, that, that was no, that's a great Yeah, no, that's a great story. And I'm, and I'm glad that you shared that with us, uh, Brandon. Uh, let me just add to this, you know, and I, and I take this out of sort of the Nicholas playbook that sort of goes yeah. on to this. Um, you know, if you look at Jack Nicholas, if you watch how he played, um, you know, I think we would all agree he he was a good fader of the ball. That was his go-to shot. That's what he was comfortable with. That's what he hit well. Um, could he draw the ball from time to time? I'm sure he could. But that was not his, his comfort shot. That's not what he played. And he often said that certain golf holes didn't suit his eye because of that. 
Um, but you would never see Nicholas do something that this gentleman did on the third hole. If he hit a nice fade out to the fairway and it's a fade hole, you wouldn't see Nicholas go up there and try and hit a draw. Um, he would continue to play the shot that he knew he needed to make in order to accomplish his task. And that is, in my opinion, this uh, young gentleman that you just referred to, is goes to, into the, to the management, of uh, course, management, if you will, um, that's a mistake. That's a mental error on his part. And, and he may have, as you said, buried the first one, parred the next one, and might ended up shooting a 68. And people say, well, what's wrong with that? He's, you know, he's in contention, perhaps. But the, at some point, he's going to be faced with a, a scenario where he's not going to know how to handle it or not know what to do. Uh, as you said, he doesn't know how to play the course. And this is where a lot of amateurs fall into. They they don't understand how to play the course when they get out there and they just hit whatever shot they think they might need to get to the green or to get off the first tee. And it may not be the proper way to play that particular hole to give yourself the best opportunities. And, and as I said, I take that from Nicholas's playbook. Um, Clint, do you want to add to that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, I got a lot to add to that. I mean, <laughs> guys. Well, first of all, back to the original thing, I try to teach even the beginner's strategy. Sure. And here's the way that I, I want them going out there trying to take, even off the first tee, what's your favorite club? I want them to hit a guy. If they really like their five wood, let's play the five wood off the tee. Something they got mm-hmm. confidence in. Let's move it down range, down range. I want them using their favorite clubs, learning how to get around the golf course. You know, we, we see it all the time. Well, you got to buy this big driver, and it's the first, you know, you got to hit a driver off the tee, right? You know, you got to have that big driver. And I want them playing their favorite clubs. And that way they can learn to kind of manage their way around the golf course with a little bit of success if they've got that, that, that good club in their hand. And the, to, to get into the, the – he was talking about his web.com players. Is part of that comes down to the type of golf courses that these kids have learned on and the equipment they're using. In the early stages of their golf career, they could overpower a golf course. They don't yeah. have to have strategy. They just blast it down there to 50 yards from Dan Green, pitch it up on the green, and hopefully they can putt. They never learn. See, I, Brandon, I don't know how old you are. I'm, I'm almost 60 years old. I can remember when they put 150-yard markers on my home course. <laughs> We thought it. Yep. We thought we were uptown. We we knew where the 150 yard marker was. Yeah, we black learned. and white barber pole that sat in the middle. Yeah, of the fairway, I mean, you right? know, we yeah. had a little old. St- now they put little stakes on each side of the fairway, and I, to this day, yeah. I don't think they were 150 yards because the greenskeeper come by and mow them, stick them back down wherever he wanted to. You know, yeah. <laughs> but the thing of it is, I mean, we learned to play by feel. We learned to look right. with our eyes and get a sense how far away we were, what kind of shots going to bounce <clears> it up on the green and <clears> and things. I mean. And what really gets me is you get a kid stands out there from 200 yards out with his rangefinder, and when he's 30 feet from the hole, he couldn't tell if he was 10 inches away from the hole. Mm-hmm. You know, and where where do I need to know more? You know, it's important to know how far away you are, but they they do have a sense of that they've overpowered it. That's how they've learned how to play. Because all we hear yeah. hit it long, you know, eight irons from 190 yards, you know. <laughs> You know, I, I I stood out. I was watching the U.S. Open, and these guys hitting that uh, four iron on a 288 yard hole, and I'm laying up. <laughs> you know, right. But, you know, but and I do think that it, during the U.S. Open, I thought that they did a nice job showing 
the yardage books. Mm-hmm. Did you pick that up watching the, the telecast? Yep. Is that they showed mm-hmm. the yardage book and what they were looking at. I thought that was wonderful to show people. Obviously, a lot of people watching the U.S. Open, that this is what these guys are working with. This is the information. You know, and all of these kids have data. I have data on my game. I know that I hit a 7-iron 155 yards or 150 yards. I know how far I hit each club. That's the data that I've collected through experience. But then what what am I going to do with that data? You know, I, I do like people to to get stats and understand, but what are we going to do with it? And these kids are never taught. I know when I was growing up, you know, I looked at two people to help me improve the way I played, my dad and my, the local golf pro. That was the information we had. Yep. You know, there was a few books and stuff, but, you, you, you know, you looked at that player, person to teach you how to play, and and then – the people you played with, you know, you watched, you observed how they getting around the course, the older members of the club, you learn from experience. Um, and I think it's your person on the web.com, he learned a little bit that day. You know, that um, the difference, with the, to me anyway, the difference between web.com and the regular tour is just that difference. What, how right. are they playing? Like Nicholas, Nicholas was never going to play a shot he wasn't comfortable with, and so so it, it's one of those things where we are. I agree with Brandon. As golf instructors for the players, I would say from twelve to thirteen years old uh, on up to the college level. You know, I run this. I coached collegiate golf for ten years at, at the junior college level, and these kids would come in. They could hit it. But the the reason they were playing junior college golf versus D1 is they didn't know how to play. Yep. They could hit it. So I spent a lot of time trying to teach them how to play, and some of them accepted it, and some of them going, well, I just don't play. I don't do it that way. Um, and so, I mean, I, I think you're right on the money, but I think that, that until we as golf professionals decide that we're going to help our students move away from that disinformation and being trapped to thinking they've got to go beat balls on the range, that's what, that's, mm-hmm. that's what they're going to do. We have to be the leaders in our industry, not the, not, not the followers. Yeah, and, and, and uh, Brandon and, and Clint, great, uh, great points. Um, you know, you guys have hit it right on the, on the, the nail on the head tonight. Um, so thank you for that first off. And, and I hope that the listeners that are, that are tuning in tonight's broadcast and the future listeners that are going to tune in a little bit later for the recorded version, uh, I hope really take heed to what we've, we've talked about here tonight. Um, you know, the purpose of Coach's Corner is, is really to help people think a little bit outside of the box, a little bit more, and not just, you know, working on, well, how do I fix my slice or how do I, you know, how do I draw the ball? It's not about um, technique, but we want you to really think about um, how you need to play the game and, and how you should play the game. And there's no, um, you know, there's no one methodology, if you will. There's no, you know, magic elixir, if you will, uh, out there in the golf industry, as you alluded to earlier, um, Clint. You know, there's a lot of videos and things that circulate around, a lot of even instruction that circulates around about, well, you need to be doing this or you need to be doing that um, with some new swing theory. And it seems to be focusing more on, on mechanics um, and, and we're starting to see a shift in the industry, of course, as Brandon alluded to, 
Um, you know, certainly more players are starting to understand the importance of stats, but they're also um, learning to look at other areas of the game, the physical part of the game, meaning um, their body, you know, being in tune with, with what their body can do and can't do. Because as we've all observed over the years, guys, you know, we look at some of the older players like the Nicholas's, the Tavinos, the Johnny Millers and so forth. None of them had the same looking golf swing. They all had different ways of approaching it, um, but they were able to play the golf courses and ultimately uh, earn them much success. And when you look at today's player, I think they're more concerned, um, you know, about the technology and what the technology is telling them instead of getting out in the golf course and actually playing the course the way it's meant to be played. And that's what we want to sort of, as you guys have pointed out, we want to start getting away from getting people out there and playing because I think ultimately if they do that, um, they're going to start having more fun and be less discouraged and, and dropping out to, of the sport altogether. So, um, guys, I'm going to give you an opportunity very quickly to both of you. Any final thoughts? Um, Brandon, since you're a newcomer tonight, I'll let you have any closing thoughts uh, and also let the folks know if they're interested in reaching out to you uh, um, for lessons or otherwise, how they can contact you. Wow. Well, I would, you know, you should have let, you should have let Clint go first. Cause I don't really know what okay. closing <laughs> comments are supposed to be, but uh, with that being said, I, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think I have, I don't think I have much much left to say. I, you know, to your amateur golfers out there, you know, get, go get some help, right? I mean, stop stop listening to magazines and listening to all these videos and trying to figure it out on your own. Get some help. You know, and that may not be the cheapest way to do it, but find a qualified professional in your area and, and then seek out some help and then play some golf. Uh, you know, to uh, to your point earlier, you know, you're not going to get better if you don't play. And you don't work on it, exactly. right? And so, um, you know, get get out there and play. As far as reaching out to me, um, my website's really the best way to get me. Um, you can get there at uh, bs, as in Bravo Sierra, bsgolf.com. Um, and uh, I, I'm particularly fond of that URL. I searched for many years to get that one. It was a nice little twist and could be taken several different ways. But uh, um, my, my first name is Brandon, so it does have some meaning right. other than what you might be thinking BS stands for. But, uh, but anyway, all my contact information is there. If you want information on about my book, um, you can find it there as well. And that's really the best way to reach out to me for any questions you might have. Uh, just bsgolf.com, and I'd love to hear from you guys. That's it. I appreciate it, Ted. Perfect. It was fun. Perfect. Thank you, Brandon. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Uh, Clint, I'll let you wrap up uh, the, the last moment or two as well before I let both of you go. Not a problem. I, as usual, Ted and Brandon, it's been a pleasure. This is, uh, it's always nice to have a conversation about something that matters. Um, <laughs> but you can reach out to me. Um, ClintGoff001 at Yahoo.com is the easiest way to get a hold of me. And I don't know if any of you folks are baseball fans, but I just got to put this out here. And I hate to do it because they beat my Gators. But the <laughs> Coastal Carolina Chanticleers won the College World Series today. And <laughs> so, you know, baseball is king in Myrtle Beach tonight for at least one day. Wait, 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 wait a second, wait a second. By Gators, do you mean the Florida Gators? Uh, that's the only Gators I've ever known. I mean, oh, where oh, are you going to go now? I mean, oh, only reason Clint, I hate Clint, it now. Clint. If you're a Georgia fan, but I moved to Clemson because they hated Georgia worse than we did. You know oh, I mean? Clint, <laughs> I, I, you know I don't even know you, brother, and I'm starting to lose a little tiny bit of respect hey, for you now. Come okay. on, I'll you... come to make. Hey, look, 
I, I'm from <laughs> Northwest Florida, you know, and near Destin, Panama City. So I'll come through making every now and then. You can buy me lunch, and we'll discuss that. Well, yeah. for the record, I am definitely not a Georgia Bulldog fan. Well, I hate that. Uh, I, was, I was born and raised in Knoxville, Tennessee, and my blood runs orange. So, well, uh, now, let, hey, just hang on a minute now. Uh, yeah, I'm on, uh, the show's <laughs> going to end up. I have been yeah. to many a game at Tennessee. My, just for my, my youngest daughter's uh, godfather was the president of the University of Tennessee, so I, I will tell you this, as I'm a Tennessee fan as long as they're not playing the Gators. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I I appreciate that, but I'm pretty much never a Florida Gator fan. Despite That's who okay. Playing. I mean, we all got burdens <laughs> to bear. Okay. That's right. Well, gentlemen, let me let me just say this. Um, it, it's it's up until the last minute. It's been a pleasure having you both on the show, but you got to take the fighting <laughs> off off the show. No, I'm only kidding. Um, Clint, uh, thank you as always for coming on the show. And Brandon, no problem. Yeah, uh, did, a, did a fantastic job uh, the the first night. And as I mentioned to the, to the audience out there earlier, uh, Brandon Stukesbury is going to be on the show in two weeks' time, the 14th of July, uh, as my special guest in the second half. Uh, and Clint, I know you'll be back for, for future uh, Coach's Corner yeah. as well as uh, Brandon. Um, whether or not you're going to be on the same panel the next time, I don't know. I may have to jump <laughs> up a little bit. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll, put up with, we'll put up with each other, Ted. We'll put up with each other. That's right. That's right. Okay. You, you guys did a great job, as always. Thank you very much uh, to both of you. God Take bless. Care. And have a great uh, holiday weekend. Happy uh, 4th of July to both of you. And uh, Godspeed, and we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, be safe. Thanks, Thanks guys. Ted. See ya. Appreciate bye. it, man. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, that was my very special uh, Coach's Corner panel tonight, Clint Wright and Brandon Stukesbury, um, two great uh, seasoned veterans of the game and uh, certainly enjoyed having them on. Um, but we're, we're moving the show along, and I see my, my uh, very special guest tonight is uh, ready to, to join me here. Um, she's actually been on the show before. Uh, she was a call-in, uh, I guess a guest you could call her, um, if you recall, a few months back. Uh, Peggy Rhodes uh, was on the show talking about, of course, her late father, uh, Teddy Rhodes, who was a, um, a, a great asset to the game. He had played many, many years ago. Of course, um, he was uh, African-American, one of the pioneers um, on the, uh, the tour at that time and really paved the way for many of the players like Tiger Woods, uh, Lee Elder, and even uh, Charlie Sifford uh, to uh, get out there and, and play with some of the best golfers in the world. And, uh, my, my guest coming up now is Asia Adele. She's a, a young up-and-comer. She is a, a professional golfer from uh, Las Vegas, uh, Nevada, and currently plays on the, uh, the Cactus Tour uh, out west and is working her way to the uh, full-time to the LPGA Tour. She's going to be going here. We'll talk a little bit about that here in a moment. Uh, she's going to be going to the LPGA Q School here, I believe, in August, if I'm not mistaken, is when it uh, is the first opportunity and, as I said, working towards uh, her full-time LPGA Tour card. Uh, but just to give you a little bit of information, she attended uh, high school at Clovis West in Fresno, California, uh, and was a four-time MVP. Uh, there she made school history as she led her Golden Eagle team to four straight Valley Championship titles and uh, medaled numerous times individually. As a senior, Asia shot a record-breaking 300 par 69 uh, to capture the Central Section North Area Championship. And while at the high school, she also won the Fresno City Amateur and the Len Ross Junior Championship titles as well. Uh, many, many accolades. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But let me uh, bring up my very special guest, professional golfer, uh, Asia Adele. Good evening, Hello, Asia. Hello, Ted. Good evening. Thank you so much for having me on Golf Talk Live again as your special guest. I'm honored. Well, I'm glad to have you here. And, and as I 
uh, briefly mentioned in, in the uh, the opening segment there, uh, you came on actually with um, uh, Peggy Rhodes uh, as as a call-in guest as well, and we talked about some of the, the things that she was doing, of course, with the uh, uh, the Ted Rhodes Foundation, and uh, and and had got some of your input as well. And, and before we we get into our, sort of the the meat and potatoes of our discussion tonight, I've got to ask you because. Uh, as as we know, we're we're connected on social media through Facebook and so forth, uh, as I am with right. Peggy, and I know that she just recently celebrated a birthday uh, in Las Vegas, and you, uh, I believe, uh, were with her at, at some of the occasions. So, uh, tell us a little briefly, a little bit about that. How did that go? And did she win big when she was in Vegas? <laughs> well, we did. We did get the opportunity to hang out and chat for a bit while she was here. She was celebrating her birthday. I'm not going to say how old she is, but I'll tell you that she looks great for her age. We went, we had lunch on the strip and did a little sightseeing, walked around her hotel and just just had a good good time catching up. Peggy's been such a positive influence in my life and in my career. I've loved having her support and the support of the uh, Ted Rhodes Foundation. So seeing her here in Vegas and her daughter Tiffany as well was just mm-hmm. such a joy. Yeah, it perfect. Was, it was and- an absolute joy. Yeah, Peggy's been on the show a few times and, and a great guest and just a, a real asset to to uh, the golf industry. I mean, she's working very hard um, really to spread golf um, throughout uh, different communities, but particularly through the African-American community uh, here in the United States and abroad um, with the Teddy, uh, Ted Rhodes Foundation. And I know um, just so that the people can kind of get up to speed, maybe you can just sort of reiterate a little bit about how your relationship with Peggy sort of evolved and and sort of the affiliation and connection with the Ted Rhodes Foundation, how that sort of came about, and then we'll we'll continue on. Well, similar to you and I, Peggy and I actually connected on social media. So we started chatting on uh, Facebook and got to know each other a bit, and she reached out to me and let me know kind of what the Ted Rhodes Foundation was all about and that I was a great candidate for a Ted Rhodes Rising Star, which actually leads Mm -hmm. into an event that I'll be attending in August, actually August 8th. I'll be in St. Louis, Missouri for the Ted Rhodes Beat the Pro Classic, and Lee Elder Mm -hmm. will actually be in attendance there, so it'll be an honor to oh, meet wow. him and participate in all the festivities for such an amazing cause. Because as I mentioned briefly on the show last time, that's what I seek to do once I make it to the LPGA is just advance that minority participation in golf because it's very disproportionate now. And I think right. basically what the game needs is more exposure for those young kids out there. And what her, organi- what her organization is doing, as well as organizations like the First Tee, is, is a step in the right direction, in my opinion. So I'm, I'm honored to partner with them and participate in uh, those activities that further that cause. And, and, and it's a great cause, and, I, and I'm 100% behind that. Let me just, uh, for the listeners here, let me just, uh, I'll throw out a few little tidbits as we go along. Um, just to let you know, of course, uh, you went on uh, to play Division One golf. Um, for four years, and you tied the school record with a two under par 70 at the uh, Wichita State Invitational. Uh, a great collegiate career as well as a high school career, and now you're you're sort of navigating your way. Uh, currently, right now, you're playing in a lot of the different Cactus Tour events. 
uh, but you're preparing for the LPJ qualifying school this August uh, in, of course, pursuit of your dream to compete full-time uh, against, and I hate to use the term, the, the big ladies, but the, I mean, I'm obviously <laughs> referring to, to the, uh, the LPJ tour, as, as right. I'll rephrase it. Um, so let's talk about a little bit about what's happening right now, um, and we'll get into a little bit more why you went out to, to Las Vegas and, and why you're there and so forth, but let's talk about um, your pursuit of that card. Um, what are you trying to do? What do you see, you know, over the next uh, few years? What's the vision or game plan that you have in, in getting yourself out? Obviously, first and foremost is get your tour card. But what is your 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 short term vision? What do you see as a long term vision uh, for Asia? Well, my long term vision, as I touched on a little earlier, would be to eventually get on the LPGA tour and secure a lucrative career there. But in the meantime, what I'm doing now is competing on Cactus Tour events, which are primarily uh, in Arizona, around the Phoenix area. So I drive from Las Vegas to Phoenix. It's about four and a half hours. And professional golf at the mini-tour level is not as glamorous as many people may think. It's a lot of time spent alone, a lot of time driving in hotels alone. And even for my tournaments, there are 54-hole events with no cut and we get carts, so typically I won't even take a caddy for those events just to save on expenses. So it's a lot of time alone, but I absolutely love it, Ted. I love it, and at this level I'm just building experience and trying to get more notches in my belt so that I'll be prepared Mm -hmm. come August and, you know, come time to tee it up for my first time on the LPGA. So what I'm gearing towards now and what, you know, all of my practice and all of my workouts are geared towards is Q School, Stage 1, and that's August 22nd in California at Mission Hills Country Club. Hmm. Very good. Now, I mentioned briefly, um, and, and I'm going to let you explain a little bit more detail, I mentioned that you moved to Las Vegas. Obviously, um, it, it's a great climate there, but uh, where are you originally from, and, and what brought you to the Las Vegas area? Why did you choose that specific area um, to, to sort of put roots down, if you will, to, to further your golf career? Well, originally I was born and raised in the heart of Dixie, Montgomery, Alabama. That's where I first learned how to play golf at the age of five. My dad put my first golf club in my hand, and I was hooked. So I played a lot of junior golf events in Montgomery um, through organizations like the First Tee and Right Start Junior Golf Academy. So I kind of got the golfing bug there and then moved to California in 2004. I was 12 years old, and my parents got a job transfer So in California, I played on my middle school golf team and my high school golf team and then ultimately went to Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo. And after Mm -hmm. my four-year tenure at Cal Poly, I was almost at a crossroads. I got my degree in business and concentrated in marketing, and I wasn't sure whether I wanted to pursue that or dive right into the world of professional golf. So I actually went into the corporate world for nearly a year. And I enjoyed it. It was really fulfilling, but this fire and this passion for golf was burning almost inside my gut, and I couldn't stay away from the course. So what I did was I researched a lot, and I realized that what I needed to do if I wanted to dive into professional golf and give it my all Mm -hmm. was move to Las Vegas, and that's where my golf coach is. So being closer to him, I felt like, was the key. Right what I needed to advance my game if I was going to take it seriously. So that was the leap of faith, and now I'm here in Las Vegas pursuing my dream. 
And and you know what? It, and it raises an interesting point. Um, obviously, you have a set goal, that, something that you want to do. Um, you want to have a lucrative um, career, if you will, on the uh, LPJ tour. But something I want to point out, and this is sort of another uh, little nugget I want to share with the audience. Um, and, and of course, I'm talking about your your um, time at, at uh, uh, Cal Poly. Um, you not only did you play some great golf there. Um, but you also managed to uh, get earn a degree of business uh, administration and particularly concentrated marketing management. So, you know, mm-hmm. you you didn't sacrifice you didn't sacrifice a good education simply to get out and play golf. One of the mistakes that we've seen time and time again um, with a lot of younger players, which of course you fall into that category, is they they want to skip over the education a little bit sometimes too quickly and get out there and you know they want to compete because they think they're good enough. Um, you chose a different route. You're, you're certainly competing, but at the same time, you didn't sacrifice that education. How important is that to you to make sure that to keep yourself grounded just in case, now I'm not jinxing anything here, but just in case <laughs> things on the tour, life on the tour doesn't end up going quite the way you, you foresee it, how important is that education to fall back on going to be for you? Oh, you're totally right with that, Ted. So many athletes and so many of my friends actually chose to go to schools with, you know, the top-notch athletic programs and sacrifice their academics, which was something I was unwilling to do. had long talks with my parents about that because that was always of utmost importance to me. I had a 4.0 all throughout high school and am a bit of a perfectionist when it comes to everything, but especially academics. I was a student that never really had to be pushed. I was always self-motivated and self-driven. So I told my parents, and I even told prospective coaches that I wanted academics to come first. I knew how how important, how vital that was in my life, you know, ultimately if golf didn't pan out, like you said, but I, I visited many schools and when I went to Cal Poly and, you know, learned about the prestige of that university and what a degree right. from Cal Poly meant, that sealed the deal. That really sealed the deal for me. And it was still a juggling act once I, you know, attended my first class at Cal Poly. From the <laughs> moment that I attended that first class to the moment that I walked across the stage in June of 2014, it was not easy. It was a constant, you know, balancing act, like I said, between golf and, and school. I would uh, often cut practice short by an hour or so to get back to school for projects or group meetings or to finish right. a late night assignment. So, you know, I had many sleepless nights and and it was difficult, but um, like I said, I had to drive to get through it, and I, I saw the finish line, so that helped me through. And I want to point out just one other thing on, on that note, um, which I think is very important for people to understand, and, and again, it goes to what I just um, uh, said a moment ago. Um, you graduated, uh, you know, obviously in June of 2014, but you actually didn't turn pro until November of 2014. And the reason why I want to make that distinction, that point, that out is, and again, this is not a criticism to uh, some of the other uh, pros out there, but many of them will turn pro before they even finish their collegiate school. And, and right. you know, what might work for one might not work for somebody else. But one of the, the things that I find about the way you did it being better is the fact that you secured your education first. In other words, even though you have aspirations of playing uh, professional golf, uh, again, you kept yourself grounded and well-rooted in your education platform first. Make sure you got that, as you said, under your belt before you went to the next stage. You didn't try to rush the process, and that was a very smart move on your part. 
Right. Yeah, my parents always stressed that fallback to me. And they said, you know, life takes many turns, and you never really know. There's no real guarantees. So, you know, you could get injured or anything could happen, and you want that solid degree to fall back on. So, you know, I'm really thankful for their guidance and their support in that because um, it definitely helped me, and it definitely, uh, I think it gave me a more uh, well-rounded college experience, finishing that out, getting my degree, and then choosing to focus on the golf. Right. Um, And because, you know, the other thing, too, is, you know, you can always – um, you know, you're still obviously plenty, plenty young enough that you can, you know, pursue the golf career, but it's a little more difficult if, um, you know, you had pursued golf a little bit further advanced and then all of a sudden uh, now you want to go back and finish your degree, you know, 10 years later. It's a little bit different approach to it. So I think the way you handled it and the, and the, and the steps that you took uh, to advance it, were, as I said, were right on. Um, well, thank you. You know, there's about- another positive I think in doing that, and that's really uh, allowing yourself to to love the game again. And sometimes in college I see a lot of athletes get burnt out. I mean, you're constantly on the road from tournament to tournament. And if you dive right, right. into the world of professional golf, like I said, that's taxing as well. You, I feel like yep. you almost need that little break if it's just, you know, a month or so to kind of gather yourself and, and rekindle that passion because getting burnt out is, you know, one of the worst things that could happen to a player. Right. And there's a maturity thing as well. I think, you know, to allow yourself to mature as, as a young woman, um, to be able to have experience. And I think you need to enjoy that, that college experience, uh, that, you know, that collegiate experience as you go along. And, and if you're too focused on your golf game all the time at a, at a professional level, it's hard to really balance, as you said, um, you know, successfully. I'm not saying it can't be done, but I think it does present some some challenges um, that quite often are not. And I've heard, you know, we've interviewed a number of the Symmetra Tour players. Uh, some have, you know, done as you have done, and others sort of were, were wavering along the way, you know, between college and 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 uh, as you said, a lot of times they're on their own, they're they're traveling a mm-hmm. lot, and it can be very difficult trying to balance that. Um, you know, right. I remember uh, Michelle Wee, you know, when she was going out on the LPGA Tour. Uh, and still mm-hmm. going to Stanford, um, you know, that's not an easy transition to be able to uh, to do that. I mean, she managed to, but I'm sure that there were things that we may not ever hear about that. Cha- right, there were sacrifices along the way. Sure, exactly. And and sometimes that's not always a good thing, but, uh, you know, it, it can balance out in the end. But, uh, but, um, but again, job, job well done. I, I want to... Thank you, thank you. As, you're welcome. As we touch base on sort of that professional level now, um, in today's game, you know, we talked about in the coaches' corner panel a little bit earlier um, with the guys on the on the panel discussion. There, it, it's different for people that are playing at your level than it is, say, some of the amateurs out there, um, and it's different players at your level and obviously the LPGA and the PGA Tour than what it was, say, 25, 30 years ago. There's a lot more. Uh, there's a team, if you will, of of individuals. Talk about your team. Um, and, and the importance of why, in today's competitive golf, why it's important to have a team around you to be able to help reach some of your goals. Well, uh, like I alluded to a little bit earlier, that sparked my move to Las Vegas, was knowing that I had to be closer to my golf coach at the Butch Harmon School to take things to the next level. So while I was living in California, I was driving about six hours to Las Vegas, I'd say every two or three months 
to see my coach. So it was really infrequent, and it was hard to build upon when I'd have a great lesson, and then I'd wait three months, and then I'd have another one and not really make that consistent progress that I was hoping for. So in moving to Las Vegas, it's been nothing but positive for my game all around. I've got my coach here, and I've also assembled a complete team, which is nothing – I haven't had that ever before. I've got – Right. golf-specific workouts now. I work out over in Henderson, the same city where my mm-hmm. lessons are, at a right. studio called Anthem Fitness. And they're a TPI facility, so that's Titleist Performance Institute, and they specialize right. in all things golf. Uh, it's actually the team of people that Jordan Spieth works with. So from right. the moment I stepped into the facilities, they did you know diagnostic screening and determined every area where I was weak. So we did exercises from simple toe touches to ball tosses and hip rotations to determine exactly where I needed to work and where I needed to improve to see those drastic improvements in my performance on the golf course. So that was that was huge for me. It was expensive, but I definitely needed it to become a better golfer, and I'm still working with that team now. So I've got the fitness, and I've also got the sports psychology here in Vegas. And that's something that I've always tried to pay attention to in my golf game. I know, you know, grinding on the range and playing a lot is one thing, but you see many neglect the mental game. And it's almost, I mean, you could correlate that with working out. I feel like you have to stay on a steady workout regimen to see results. The same with the mental game in golf. I mean, you can read a book, but if you don't apply it and, you know, stay up on it, it's not going to be too beneficial for you. So getting my sports psychologist and him uh, having talks with me and helping me learn how to control my thinking on the golf course really Mm -hmm. made the most pivotal change for me, I feel like, in my golf. After I uh, started working with my sports psychologist, I cashed my first check on the Cactus Tour. It was almost <laughs> instantaneous. I mean, I know wow. you, you don't see results like that too often, right? but uh, I could attribute a lot of my uh, recent success to just changing my thinking and realizing that how I think oftentimes is, it directly correlates to my success and the result and the score. So, Adding that to my would team you, is an awesome. Right, as well would you as agree, it, right? Would you agree, Asia? Then, in this statement, um, obviously the physical game—you know, having sound fundamentals and and obviously um, being a—and a, I say relatively good ball striker. I mean, obviously to play it at, at a tour level, you've got to be a pretty solid ball striker. But would you say in this statement that um, how you think your way around the golf course is equally, if not more, important? on how well you hit the ball? Oh, my gosh. I would say it's almost more important. Once you surpass a certain skill level, it becomes all mental because uh, in your earlier segment, I know you guys touched a little bit upon seeing all sorts of swings out there. Nobody's got the quote-unquote perfect swing. So what it becomes then is a mental battle out there. And we've Mm -hmm. got one of the longest sports ever. I mean, at four and a half hours out there, I don't know of anybody that grinds that long. So you've got to learn, you know, how to control your thinking and how to be your own coach at times out there. And that's what my psychologist has taught me, and it's been a great weapon to have in the bag. Yeah, I know Bob Rotella in one of his books refers to a solid mental game as your 15th club. So you feel it gives you confidence to know that you can think your way around and maintain that even keel of emotions. 
Yeah, and I agree. I think that you have to have that that club, that that fifteenth club, in in the bag always, regardless of what level. Uh, I want to water it down just a little bit because I know obviously we have a lot of amateurs that are tuning into the show tonight, and they're thinking, you know, gosh, this is great. She's got you know all of these people around her to help her and guide her, uh, and 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 bounce ideas off. But you know, geez, I'm not a tour player, or, uh, and I don't have the access to this sort of thing. Um, but what are some things that amateurs can do? I mean, obviously they can they can get involved in a fitness program, but they don't have access to a sports psychologist, um, you know, maybe even a, a personal uh, trainer or what have you, um, or a business manager. Let's say they don't have access to all this stuff, but they want to go out and play better golf. Based on your experience, because I know you've played with amateur golfers as well in different uh, events and things like that, so you've observed what how they handle themselves. If you were going to you know, give them a few points um, to help improve their um, abilities, but also help them improve their enjoyment of the game uh, and fulfillment of the game, what would they be? Um, given the fact that you obviously have access to much more resources than they do, what would you say to the average amateur out there if you wanted to help their game, what they could do? I think the most important tip that I could give would be to really monitor your thoughts during practice rounds. I know, like you said, it's expensive. It could it could be a money issue for the average amateur or even a time issue. So, you know, I would suggest being your own coach. In a casual round with friends, just maybe jotting down some thoughts that, you know, may arise, like I have to get it over this water hazard or I really don't want to bogey this hole, and just see right. what kind of positive statement could counter that. And a simple exercise like that, I guarantee, could take some strokes off the average amateur's game because it's not entirely skill. We we know that with this game, even even right. for the amateur, even for the beginner, you've gotta gotta tell yourself positive things on the course, and you've gotta learn how to deal with adver- adversity. So if they could just do a simple exercise like that and realize that they're in direct control of what they think. They could pick, you know, awful thoughts and demanding thoughts, or they could pick great productive thoughts and thoughts that would help mm. them to, in turn, perform better. So I think that that would be my uh, number one tip, n- number one piece of advice for the average amateur. And and, and do you think you agree? Again, you, you, you touched on that you had tuned into a little bit. I don't know how much of the segment you heard, but um, one of the comments that was made and, and part of the discussion that um, both the gentleman and myself had talked about was that a lot of the players don't understand how to actually play the golf course. They're more focused on, you know, if they can hit the ball decently and they just sort of go through the motions. And that falls into that sort of, um, you know, course management and, and, you know, people, as I mentioned in the segment, you know, Jack Nicholas was one that we, we all come to mind with, but, um, and certainly Annika Sorenstam. One of the interesting points I want to make about Annika that I didn't even realize, but years ago in one of the U.S. Opens, um, you know, she struggled with this, and I want to know if, if this is something similar that you struggle with, is she had a hard time sort of shutting her mind off in between shots. You know, she had so much mm-hmm. going through her mind at the time, what do you do? Uh, let's say you, you've hit your, you know, good drive off off the tee. Are you thinking necessarily about the next shot, all the way up to that shot, or or do you let your mind sort of rest a little bit and you know, for lack of better words, smell the flowers? What's your right. process around the golf course? Are you for that four and a half hours? Are you focused in in golf, or do you let your mind sometimes relax a little bit, uh, as though you're you know taking a walk in the park? What do you do in, in you know, as part of your Ted, strategy? You know, Ted, that's something that 
didn't come easy at all to me. I actually had to learn that throughout my years of competing and playing in tournaments. I learned that I needed to defocus. At the junior golf level, I would actually have headaches after playing a round of golf just because I would be focusing the entire time and often not eating, you know, not taking in any snacks. So I learned that in between shots – I've actually got to defocus and take in my surroundings. So a lot of times now, I'll just look around. I'll I'll listen and I'll look. I'll hear the birds chirping. I'll see the flowers, right. and it kind of gets me off of golf just for that you know momentary second, and I can you know just forget about where I am and forget about the implications of the shot until it's necessary, until it's time to do that. But you know, in between, I think I read somewhere that. The actual time spent playing golf as in hitting shots is only two and a half minutes per round. The rest of the time you have, you know, your mind is free. Your mind is wandering. So if you could keep it on, you know, the right things, positive things, and things that make you happy, because in the end it's all about having fun. You know, it's a game. We want to do well, but it's all about having fun. So I've reminded myself actually to defocus, whether that be, you know, writing something on your glove or in in some cases, having a good caddy, having a caddy that takes you away from the moment or a playing partner that you enjoy being with and someone that you can talk about you know, other things with is, is, is important because it's a long time to focus out there and you absolutely can't do it. I don't think it's humanly possible to do it for five hours. Right. And, and this was something, and the reason why I wanted to mention that is, is on uh, the other show that I, that I host um, with LPJ professional Cindy Miller, who's been around the game for a long time. Of course, she's played on the LPJ tour as well as the, uh, she now plays uh, from time to time on the Legends tour. Um, but she was actually um, on one of the early big breaks on the Golf Channel. That's sort of how she sort of got her start in, in the public view, if you will. Um, but she was actually was the one that brought that story to to the other program, which uh, airs Tuesday mornings, by the way, for those of you tuning in from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern, called the Women of Golf uh, show. And, and that's something that we do together. And she brought that story about Annika Sorenstam because that was something that Annika, Annika, of course, was a very, um, you know, not just a, a great ball striker in that, but she was a real thinker around the golf. She was like the, the female version, if you will, uh, of, of Jack Nicholas. I mean, she was a, a great thinker around the golf course, but even she found herself at times, um, she would get so focused. I don't know whether she got headaches or not, but <laughs> she got too focused on the golf course and wasn't able to unwind a little bit. And I think as her career progressed, she had to learn that skill as well. And, and you're right. I think it's important. You, you, you know, as you're, um, you know, walking along, you have to take notice of what's going on around you. Um, you know, the birds and things like that. And then there's a point in time where you have to re-engage um, as you prepare for that next shot and refocus again. But um, you have to decompress because you're right, you can't go four and a half, five hours with nothing but, you know, grinding golf and, and, and you know, gears in your head because you're yeah. just going to burn out after a period of time, right? Exactly. Yeah, you can't, um, you can't clench your teeth and grind the whole time. That's, that's nearly impossible. And it makes it, like I said, it doesn't make it fun. So you've got to get back into what makes it fun. And for me, that is defocusing in between shots and just taking it all in, enjoying where I'm at. Now, what do you do, and I want to keep on the focus here of of sort of the mental side of the game, and and everybody, I don't care how good of an athlete you are, uh, everybody has some bad moments out in the golf course. Um, Did you have to learn, did you ever sort of beat yourself up on the golf course when when things weren't going well? How did you handle yourself initially as opposed to maybe how you handle yourself now, or was it pretty much the same as what you're doing now? 
Oh, most definitely. That's a learned skill for me. Like I mentioned, I'm a perfectionist in just about everything I do. And it was hard to to separate that when it came to athletics, because in academics, it was great. You know, I'd stay up all night and I'd study and I'd get the good grades and I had the 4.0. But in golf, it doesn't always work like that. You can't expect everything to go your way. You're going to get some bad breaks from time to time. And, you know, in years past, what I would do was, like you said, I would beat myself up about it. And I wouldn't I wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't display this outwardly. It was more of an inward disappointment. I'd tell myself things like I'm capable of better or I shouldn't be making mistakes like that at this level. Or, you know, now I'm in a hole and I'm going to have to climb out of this. So I'm going to have to – I put undue pressure on myself. I put expectations on myself a lot of times. And I just realized that it was counterproductive. So I learned the skill of basically decreasing my expectations when I stepped out onto the tee and being accepting of whatever came my way, whatever the course decided to give me, you know, knowing that I'd put in the hard work and that I'd practiced and that I was confident in my skills, but separating that and kind of disconnecting with the results was what helped me to improve my scores. Because as long as you go out there, in my opinion, with expectations and placing heavy demands on your performance, it doesn't lead to better scores. This game is so right. counterintuitive. It's almost like the harder you try, the longer it takes yep. to see results. But once you right. develop the attitude of either lower expectations or for some just not caring at all, <laughs> that's when the scores improve. So that's something that I had to learn as a perfectionist to almost separate that and rewire myself mentally to understand that I'm human and that everything's yeah, which not, is not be e- perfect. Right, which is uh, just about to say that, which is not easy to do for somebody who, um, you know, is a professionist, uh, perfectionist, excuse me, because you're, you're right, mentally, you know, you may not be verbally, you know, um, casting the, the, for lack of better words, those demons out, outward, but internally, you know, your, your mind is, is working overtime thinking, gosh, I can't believe I just hit that bad shot. And, and mm-hmm. as you said, you know, I can do better than that. So you have to, reprogram yourself and that works into uh and there's a lot of great again working with a sports psychologist and some of the other uh mental aspects and mental professionals out there that can help you sort of rewire and reharness the dialogue that goes on inside and the other thing too is it's not just a matter of you know positive thinking it's a matter of handling your emotions handling your emotions right. out in the golf course is critical especially at the level that you're you know that you're playing because that's really sort of the Achilles heel. You know, everybody hits a bad shot. I don't care, Jordan Spieth, you, uh, me, whatever the case may be. We're all going to hit some bad shots. We can live with that. Um, right. It's how, we hand, it's how we handle our emotions on the golf course. If we allow ourselves to get, you know, overly frustrated or, you know, exhausted all the time, it just wears you down and then slowly, you know, everything sort of falls apart. The wheels start coming off the bus, if you will, and, and it goes, uh, you know, down the hole from there. Um, and, and that's something, again, it's a lured experience and, and trial and error a little bit as well. Um, something else that I want, you know, when you're out there playing, and obviously you, you've got uh, people in the gallery, um, something I always like to ask professionals uh, when they're out there, what do you want people to be watching when they're watching you? What, what do you want them to take away to learn from how you're playing? Is it the way, uh, obviously, you know, they're going to see your swing and things like that. But right. what do you want them when they go to a, a golf event? In other words, um, certainly you want them to have fun and enjoy uh, what's happening. But at the same time, if they can pick up some little nuggets and tidbits from your play, what do you think they should be looking for and focusing on as far as your play is concerned? 
And as far as my play is concerned, I'd love for whoever is watching me to say that I'm a great manager of the course. That's something that I've worked hard on is my course management and really dissecting courses and, you know, realizing which holes are red lights, which holes are yellow lights, so to speak, and which holes are go-for-it green lights. So I'd like for somebody to compliment me on my skill and my course management. But even even beyond that, I think the best compliment that I've received on the golf course, it, in fact, it wasn't even golf-related. It was someone at a tournament in Buckeye, Arizona, Cactus Tour event, huh. Sundance. They told me that they could see Christ in me just with the way that I handled myself and my grace on the hmm. golf course. I actually was playing well that day, but to me, wow. you know, that didn't even matter. What I got from this man was a, an even better compliment that, you know, he could tell that Christ was inside of me with the way I handled myself. And that just made me feel so good. In fact, I posted it on my personal website because that's something right. that has also been a process with me is my faith. Um, I wasn't always as strong of a Christian as I am now, and I feel like my faith has been shaped through golf. Actually, something that a lot of people don't know about me is that I kind of had this this change in perspective in 2011. I qualified Mm -hmm. for the U.S. Amateur Golf Tournament. It was the biggest event that I'd qualified for in my life. I'd never competed in a USGA-sanctioned event before, and I was just really, really excited to have that opportunity. I qualified in uh, San Diego, I believe, and made it to Rhode mm-hmm. Island in 2011 and vowed that, you know, I would prepare harder than anybody else, that I would, you know, sacrifice and make the necessary changes in my swing to be prepared and be as as ready as I could be. So I get to this tournament, and I'm playing some really solid golf. In fact, I challenged everybody in the Fresno, California area (laughs) to match play because I knew that that was the format of the tournament, two days of stroke play, match play to follow. So I was definitely the most prepared, in my opinion. But I got there to that tournament, and on the fourth hole of regulation play, I got this sharp, sharp pain in my left oblique, like nothing that I had ever felt before, and I was doubled over. And the shot was out of heavy rough, and I did have an awkward stance. But I swung all out at it, and after that, I, like I said, was doubled over. So I told my dad, who was on the bag, I said, Dad, I'm really, really hurting, and I think it's serious because, you know, I can't even stand up right now. And he said, oh, you, you'll probably be okay. Just shake it off. And we walked right. to the green. I actually ended up parring the hole, but the pain got progressively worse, and I didn't know what it was. So... I ended up grinding out the round, but I had to go to urgent care after to find out that I had severely strained that oblique and had to take four weeks off of golf. So you could imagine me with my preparation, with my confidence in my game, and this being the biggest tournament that I'd ever qualified for, being angry. I was just really, really angry and questioning, why me? Why now? And it was then that I sort of had to renew my perspective and change my mindset because I realized I looked deep within myself after that happened and said, you know, what's going Mm -hmm. on? And I realized that golf had ultimately taken over in my life. Everything was centered around golf. You know, it was the most important thing and relationships suffered. Everything suffered as a result of golf. So I wasn't leading a very balanced life. It almost consumed me in a way. So after that USAM, what I realized was that I needed to get closer to God and realize why I was playing golf. 
And that's mm-hmm. ultimately now to glorify him. I've got a verse that I uh, have on my website, on, my, on the very front mm-hmm. page of my website. It says, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's Colossians 3.17, mm-hmm. and I live by that now because I realize that it, there's a lot more to life than the sport that I play. But if I could use that as right. you know, a, a platform to glorify him and the, with the talent that he's given me, then, you know, I can do that most definitely. But that's no longer is it the most important thing in my life. And I've, you know, surprisingly I've played a lot better golf since I've changed my attitude. But <laughs> that's something that's something that people don't know about me. But if they could take that away after seeing me play a round of golf, I would be, mm-hmm. you know, that would be the best, the best compliment anyone could give me. Well, well said. Um, I, I agree 100% with what, uh, you, with your statement. I, I agree that you have to, you have to put things in perspective and, and really, you know, as you pointed out earlier as well, uh, golf is, is just a game and you've obviously been given, you know, certain gifts that far exceed maybe some of the amateurs out there. And, and those are obviously gifts, um, you know, from God. And, and those are things that you can use, um, not just for your enjoyment, obviously, but for his glory as well. And I agree with you hundred percent. Exactly. And it's, 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 it's good at, at, at the age that you're at, um, that you recognize that because a lot of people don't see that until much later in life. And by that time, you know, they look back with regret. So it's good that you were able to learn that lesson very early on and, and can move forward as a result of that. Um, right. It, helps, it said, helps you to take the good right. and the bad. I mean, in, this sport. Right. It puts things in perspective. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, all right. Let me ask you something here uh, and something I noticed when you had sent over some of the photos um, for me to uh, preparation of the show. And, and, uh, and I want you to explain the, the relationship with this gentleman. Uh, I noticed that you had a logo on some of the clothing that uh, you're wearing, your, your cap, of course, and uh, I believe your, your, your golf shirt and that. Um, tell us a little bit about Peter and, uh, yeah. and how you, you – yeah, you, I know Peter. That's why I'm, I'm throwing this out there as a, uh, a, a plug for him. But tell us, uh, first off, who I'm referring to and sort of how you came about uh, meeting Peter and, and uh, acquiring some of the – is he a sponsor or, or what is the relationship there? Right, yeah. Peter Andrew, he owns a clothing brand called uh, PA Golf. He's from Switzerland, and he reached right. out to me on uh, Facebook. And this was before I even turned professional. So his um, his message actually came as a shock to me because I didn't know that I was getting any exposure yet. So he messaged me mm. on Facebook and told me about his brand and that they'd be interested in sending me some gear. So uh, him and I had a relationship, um, a professional relationship for a couple years. He sent me uh, right. some clothes and a golf bag, but we're no longer working together now. Right. But, um, yeah, his brand is, is worldwide, and he's got tons right. of apparel, even uh, non-golf apparel, even fitness apparel and casual right. wear. So, um, yeah, it was, it was uh, great to be associated with him for that time and uh, get to wear his, wear his gear and, and spread the word about PA golf. But we're no longer working together now. Right. Yeah, I, I noticed that, and, and I wasn't sure what the, what the status of the relationship. But the reason I wanted to mention that is he obviously has some very interesting designs and very forward-thinking designs, and and uh, they were they were great outfits, by the way. Um, I just wanted to, to quickly mention that I, I know Peter very well. He's actually uh, connected with him on social media as well, and uh, we've okay. corresponded a number number of times over the years. But I just wanted to mention that very quickly. But um, 
you know, lastly, what I what I want to you know talk about is something that you touched on earlier on um, earlier in the segment. You you know you talked about obviously uh, some of your LPGA goals and and sort of um, what you want to do on the LPGA tour once you you get out there. Um, but also you want to advance, uh, help to advance uh, not only the female, but also the minority participation in golf. Um, we're, we're starting to, you know, doors are starting to open. We've got obviously a long, long way to go yet, but certainly some doors have, have been opened through some of the greats. Uh, you know, uh, Teddy Rhodes, as we mentioned earlier, uh, you know, Charlie Sifford, of course, who unfortunately is no longer with us uh, as well. Uh, and Lee Elder, who you're going to be uh, seeing here uh, shortly. On the 8th, uh uh-huh. um, Right, exactly. Um, and, and obviously, you know, Tiger Woods. Um, we don't see a lot of, um, and I say when I say minority, um, we're certainly seeing a lot of Asian golfers coming from the Pacific and things, uh, Asia Pacific and so forth and like that. But we're not seeing a lot of uh, African-American girls uh, out on the tour right now. What do you think is it going to do? What do you, what do you hope to um, be able to do, or how do you think it's going to be able to get them interested in, I mean, obviously the Williams sisters play tennis. They've been certainly um, instrumental in opening that door, but we're not seeing it on the golf side. What do you hope to accomplish through your efforts out on the tour um, to be able to create obviously exposure, but what do you hope to be able to do to, to encourage more young African-American golfers, female golfers, particularly to gravitate to the sport? What do you think it's going to take? Well, for me, it's twofold, and this is actually something that I spoke with my mom about Mm -hmm. as well as the Ted Rhodes Foundation, and what I'd like to do eventually would be to travel nationwide and host clinics and golf camps and potential speaking engagements at middle schools to just kind of captivate these youth and show them a familiar face, a face that they can relate to. As a, sure. a black female golfer, there's I think two on tour right now with full status. So right. there's not many, not many faces, not many people that they see on tour that look like them. So I'd love to right. use my platform and actually be there to be present, to be in front of these children and host clinics, golf camps, and and just speak to them, engage them that way. And then the second part of it would be to set up golf courses or, or driving range, even even part three courses in these underprivileged areas. I think that's what they're lacking because golf is so expensive. I think, you know, it's easy for yeah. a kid to pick up a basketball and go shoot at the goal in the street or toss a football right. or, you know, play with the kids at school during recess. You know, it's easy to do those right. sports and it's cheap. But with golf, you know, how often is golf taught as an activity in right. physical education class or at recess. I know we had it at my high school, and that was rare. I haven't talked to anybody else that had a golf class in school at the grade school right. level. So I think doing things like that and then having places where the kids can take it from the school <clears throat> to the course across the street or to the driving range with mom and dad and for it to be affordable would be huge. So that's my overall vision. I would love to grow Mm -hmm. the game that way and set up, you know, an organization in the future with my name attached to it. I think, you know, that'd be a dream come true. And you're exactly right. I think it's, it's the exposure to um, the grade school level, as you said, you know, certainly uh, in high school and obviously at the collegiate level, um, you're seeing a different representation, but by that time, 
um, you know, there's a lot of missed opportunities, um, particularly for young women and particularly for young minority women um, who haven't had that early exposure. And I think there are certainly efforts um, to bring golf into the school to the earlier school grades and that. But again, because of the cost involved, personally, what I would like to see, this is an opportunity, um, I think, for um, not just businesses in the golf industry. They can certainly do their part by providing equipment uh, and things like that in the school system. But I would like to see some of the major corporations, because as you know, as well as I do, um, you know, golf's not just about outgoing, having fun and playing day in, day out. It's become a very powerful business tool and has been for years, obviously for men, but, but for women, women are starting to see the the opportunities and the advancements, um, in their business, um, side of things by adding golf as, as part of their repertoire, if you will. So what I'd like to see, yeah, I'd sort of like to see a marriage, if you will, between some of the major corporations here um, in the U.S., um, whether it be American Express and, and you know corporations of that size, along partnering with some of the club manufacturers like Titleist, uh, TaylorMade, and so on and so forth, Callaway, to name a few, um, and, and say, look, we're going to provide some of the equipment. If you can help with some of the funding to you know cover the cost, let's get golf into the school system at an earlier age, just exposure, even if it starts as an after-school thing, um, and then work in it, just to expose it. Because I think once kids get exposed to something, like, like they do basketball, football, and, and some of the other sports, um, right. then as they progress through their you know later years, um, they're more inclined to want to do that. But as you say, if they're not being exposed to it until high school, by that time, they've already adopted other interests. So what you're proposing sure. here, I think, is a, is a great idea. And I think what I'm talking about as well is a direction I think the industry itself, but also the corporate world has to adopt as well. Would you agree with that? You think? I agree 100%. And like you said, even if these youth don't want to pursue it professionally or take it to the highest level that they possibly can, it's a valuable tool and a valuable asset in the business world. I know it, you know, fared well for me when I was in the corporate world right after college. My boss really loved the fact that I played golf. In fact, we'd have outings, and, you know, that would be our time. That would be our work time. We would discuss right. business. We'd meet with clients, but we'd be golfing. Right. And right. He, they, he loved that. It almost You're almost more respected in a way, in a way right. saying, you know, oh, you play golf. It, it, it's 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 a valuable tool, I think, and it could only be positive getting uh, these kids exposure at a young age and teaching them the many, many benefits. Well, and it also, too, you know, as, as again, we both know, being in the golf business, but also playing golf uh, as a sport and as a game, um, we understand how closely golf mimics life. A lot of people that really have not been exposed to golf don't understand that through these trials and tribulations that you experience out in the golf course, very closely mimic some of the trials and tribulations that you experience uh, in your personal life. And you can learn, believe it or not, some life lessons while you're out in the golf course, how to handle yourself, how to handle your emotions and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of tools that can be learned in life while out in the golf course, while having some fun at the same time. So there's a lot of benefits to doing that. And I I agree. And I think that's a very, um, you know, respectable goal that you've uh, attached to yourself, um, you know, for once you, you know, once you get down the road a little ways, I mean, certainly you're going to start and do things now uh, and have, but uh, that's something to aspire to as well, uh, you know, as you continue your journey on as a professional um, to be able to give back and and expose people to the game. Because I think once you know yourself, once you kind of get, as you did earlier on in in Montgomery, once you kind of got exposed that, 
um, it's very easy to understand how people can get hooked on the game and think, wow, you know, this is a lot more fun than I ever thought. Because when they see it right. on TV, they don't appreciate it. It's, it looks unattainable, unattached, because they, they don't see it in their everyday life as they do with other sports. So, right, again, there's a lot of exposure. stereotypes and a lot of walls right. that have to be broken down to actually get the youth to get hooked like I was and get them to catch on and realize it's not – it's not exactly what meets the eye. Once you put that first club in their hand and they see and they get the joy of striping that first shot, in my yep. opinion, it all changes. But, uh, yeah, that's the ultimate vision for me. I've got a lot of steps in between, you know, yep. and in between and on the way, but that's the ultimate vision, and I can see it, Ted. I really can. Yeah, and I, I have no doubts that, that you're going to accomplish that. And, um, you know, I, I just think it's a matter of, of keeping, as you discussed earlier, uh, keeping your eyes focused on the man above, um, and and with that vision, because he's going to provide the the um, the navigation, if you will, and and just listening to to what he says to you and and how he guides you is going to certainly help those uh, dreams and ambitions come to fruition. Um, mm-hmm. I, I can't believe how fast this hour <laughs> flew by. Oh my goodness! Um, yeah, you're right. You know, we're 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 actually uh, here just the last few minutes. So, Asia, I want to give you an opportunity very quickly, if you can. Um, just to let the folks, if they want to reach out, uh, and, and you mentioned if, um, you, not only your Facebook, but you also have a website if they want to um, follow along with, with what's uh, unfolding uh, over the next little while, and uh, go ahead and let them know how they can um, connect with you. Right. My website would be the best way to follow me on my journey and contact me. It's www.asiaadell.com. And I post regular updates and tournament results and all sorts of good info on my website. So that would be the best way. I've also got a Facebook fan page, and that's facebook.com slash Asia Adele Golf, as well as a GoFundMe with the same slash Asia Adele Golf. Because as I mentioned, you know, it's expensive at yep. this level, especially with Q oh, School yeah. coming up. <laughs> that's that's 2500 for Stage 1. Right. <laughs> stage 3 is 3000 right. So. I would and when know, love LP- any any support. Right. When is the uh, – uh, it's in August, right? When is the first stage coming up? The first stage is August 22nd through the 28th, and that's at Mission Hills okay. Country Club in Rancho Mirage, California. Perfect. Well, I can't think of a better place to start off in a beautiful California to uh, to get out. And that's the other benefit. There's some great golf courses all over the place uh, that you can get out. So that's another reason just to take up the sport um, for, if nothing else, to get out and, and see some beautiful landscape uh, out in the golf course. So, um, Asia, I want to thank you for coming back, and, and you have my, my personal invitation to come back anytime. I, I, I would love to. And we'll, uh, There's some things I want to talk to you about, and we'll talk about it at a later point, but uh, I certainly want to keep close uh, onto your journey through here, and you're, you certainly have an open invitation to come back anytime on Golf Talk Live. Well, thank you so much, Ted. It's really, really been my honor. I've enjoyed chatting with you this evening. And I would I would love to appear on the show uh, in the future. So we'll keep in touch and definitely uh, plan a later date. Sounds good. Well, Asia, again, on, on behalf of myself and, and the listening audience, uh, again, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I've enjoyed this last hour, and uh, I wish we had more time uh, in this segment. But uh, unfortunately, I've got to wind things up. But I appreciate you coming on and, and sharing some of your vision and, and some of um, what you do, and, and hopefully the listeners that have been tuning in for the last hour uh, can take away a few little nuggets here and there to help with their journey, whether they're aspiring to be a touring professional as you are, 
uh, or whether they just want to go out and have some fun uh, with their fellow competitors or friends or family, whatever the case may be. Uh, hopefully they've learned from you as well uh, in this uh, evening's journey. So thank you, Asia, for sharing that with my audience. And uh, I look forward to having you come back again in the future. No, thank you. I really, really appreciate it. And we'll be in touch, Ted. For sure. And good luck. Uh, let me know how you make out uh, on your quest for the card. Most definitely. I'll keep you in the loop. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Thank you very much, Asia. Uh, God thank bless you, Have Ted. a great evening. And, and happy 4th of July. All right. Oh, bye-bye. yeah. Happy 4th to you. Enjoy yeah, your that's holiday. Right. I will do that. Thank you very much. All right. Have a great night. All righty. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. All right, that was my very special guest, uh, Asia Adele, uh, professional golfer, um, as I mentioned earlier, currently on the Cactus Tour out in uh, the western part of the United States and some beautiful country uh, out in that area as well. Great climate. Uh, couldn't think of a, a better climate to be out and, and enjoying uh, some of the, the uh, great golf that they have out in uh, Arizona and uh, also out in Las Vegas area. Uh, which she currently resides now. And, and as we just talked about, she's going to be going through the stage one uh, qualifying here in just uh, a little over a month's time, but a month and a half time, I guess, um, uh, out in, in uh, Rancho Mirage in California. So good luck to, to Asia as well. But uh, I want to thank her as well for joining me. Uh, and also for the panelists earlier, Clint Wright and Brandon, uh, Brandon excuse me, Stukesbury, Uh, for joining on the Coach's Corner panel on the first hour. Thanks, guys, for doing a fantastic job. Thank you, Asia, as well. And I want to thank all of my uh, listeners for faithfully tuning around from all over the world, for faithfully tuning into Golf Talk Live each and every week. Uh, I love your support and and your well wishes always, and thank you for sharing uh, the links. And remember, uh, every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central or 7 to 9 Eastern Time, uh, you can find me right here in Golf Talk Live. Just go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash Golf Talk Live, and you can tune in and join us live uh, every Thursday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. Central. And for some reason, if you can't, just go to that link, blogtalkradio.com, type in Golf Talk Live up in the search key, and that will take you to the home page, page excuse me, and just scroll down to the on-demand section, uh, and you can listen to the previously aired uh, and recorded versions as well. And also, don't forget to join uh, LPGA professional Cindy Miller and I every Tuesday morning on the Women of Golf Show. Again, that's on blogtalkradio.com network. Uh, instead of Golf Talk Live, type Women of Golf, and that will take you to the Tuesday morning show, which airs 9 to 10 a.m. Uh, Eastern Standard Time. And then you'll find both myself and uh, LPGA professional and Legends Tour player Cindy Miller as we talk about uh, some of the great things happening in women's golf. And we uh, a lot of times we'll have some great players from the LPGA, but also particularly from the Symmetra Tour, as well as some great uh, female uh, golf professionals out there, LPGA, um, not only players, but uh, teach professionals as well, come on and share some of their thoughts and visions and how they're helping to grow the game in women's golf. So thank you, everybody. Thank you for all the supporters and sponsors of the show. Uh, my good uh, friend, Mr. Um, Jonathan Laird from South Coast Golf Guide. So go to southcoastgolfguide.com to learn more about his great publication in that, some great courses here in the southeastern part of the United States, uh, literally from Texas all the way over here to Florida. You'll find them in the uh, South Coast Golf Guide. Go to southcoastgolfguide.com, and you can check out his website as well. Thank you, Jonathan, uh, for all of your continued support. And uh, remember to tune in next week. Have a happy 4th of July, everybody. God bless, uh, and have a safe and happy Independence Day uh, coming up here on Monday and a great weekend. And I will see you next Thursday right here on Golf Talk Live. Thanks, everybody.